Verse 3. So God explains what is going to come. I will no longer overlook their sins. Verse 3. The women singing in the temple will wail in the day. The sovereign Yahweh is speaking. There will be many corpses littering everywhere. Be quiet. Listen to this. Who trample the needy and do away with the destitute in the land. You say, when all, when will the noon festival be over so we can sell grain? When will the Sabbath end so we can open up the grain bins? We're eager to sell less for a higher price and to cheat the buyer with rigged scales. We're eager to trade silver for the poor, a pair of sandals for the needy. We want to mix in some chaff with the grain. Yahweh confirmed this oath by the arrogance of Jacob. I swear I will never forget all you have done. Because of this, the earth will quake, and all who live in it will mourn, and the whole earth will be like the river Nile. It will surge upward and then grow calm like the Nile in Egypt. This is what God is saying. You people are so corrupt and so greedy and so hard-hearted towards the needy and the poor in the land that on religious festivals like the Sabbath, and new moon festivals where people are partying and they're being with their family. All you can think about is, I can't wait till this holiday is over with so I can get back to work and keep cheating people for more money. You're supposed to be celebrating your unity with the people and with Yahweh. You're supposed to be celebrating who Yahweh is and what he's done in your land and the gifts that he's given you. You're supposed to be with your family enjoying Christmas or Easter or whatever. And instead, all you can think about is getting back to work and making more money. And not only that, how can you save another buck? And how can you twist the prices or make the product inferior by mixing chaff in with the grain in a way that people can't see it and raising the prices higher and convincing people that it's worth it just so you can make more money? You're not celebrating Yahweh and you're not celebrating your people anymore. You're cheating them. And this is what God is saying. And all these illustrations are different ways that they're cheating people in the marketplace just to make another buck. And God hates it. This is the number one reason, other than idolatry, for why God has taken them in exile. If you think God doesn't care about this kind of stuff, this is why they went into exile. And then he says, therefore, because of this, the earth is going to quake. I'm going to shake you out of the land. And not only that, you're going to be like the River Nile. You're going to, I'm going to, the judgment is going to surge and swell beyond the borders of the river and wipe you out. And then it will recede back to its nothingness. And there will be nothing but a desolate land left behind. Verse 9, in that day it says, Sovereign Yahweh, I will make the sun set at noon. I will make the earth dark in the middle of the day. I will turn your festivals into funerals. Now, God is not literally saying that he's bringing cosmic judgment. Okay? Maybe one day in the future he will, but he never did this for Israel. But the idea is that this, the creation will no longer give life to you anymore. Okay? Not that he's literally going to make the sun set at noontime. Okay? That would have made the news, even to this day. But that he's going to literally make creation no longer produce life for you. I will turn your festivals into funerals. You're not going to celebrate anymore. You're going to be mourning the death of all your loved ones. And you're going to probably wish that you could go back to festivals and actually enjoy them and not think about work anymore. And all your songs and the funeral dirges. I will make everyone wear funeral clothes and cause every head to be shaved bald. 
I will make you mourn as if you had lost your own son. Shaving your head was a mourning practice. When its ends will be indeed have been a bitter day. When it ends, it will indeed have been a bitter day. Be certain of this. The time is coming, says Sovereign Yahweh, when I will send a famine through the land. Not a shortage of food and water, but an end to the divine revelation. Now this is key. God is saying that not only is a time coming where a physical famine will come, but a time is going to come where there's going to be a famine of my word, my divine revelation. And that will come. This is what we will call the 400 silent years, when all the prophets go silent for 400 years, and they don't hear anything from God. Now remember, Abraham, from the minute he was chosen, God came to him and spoke to Abraham. But ever since Moses, they have always had a voice of God. Since 1446, all the way up into the 400s, they have always had a voice from God. So when God goes silent on them, that's, they're going to feel it. They're going to feel it. People will stagger from the sea to the sea, and from the north to the round to the east. They will wander around looking for revelation from Yahweh, but they will not find any. And that day your beautiful young women and your young men will faint from thirst. These are the ones who now take oaths in the name of the sinful idol gods of Samaria. Okay, they're going to die of thirst, not from water, but the thirst of knowing God. It's going to kill them spiritually. And so, but now they don't care that they're disconnected from God because they're taking oaths to pagan gods. But when God takes away his word completely, then they're going to realize what they had truly had rejected. They vow as surely as your God lives, O Dan, or as surely as your beloved one lives, O Beersheba, but they will fall down and not get up again. So God then gives them a fifth vision. Chapter 9, verse 1. I saw the sovereign one standing by the altar, and he said, strike the tops of the support pillars so the thresholds shake. Knock them down on the heads of all the people, and I will kill their survivors with the sword. No one will be able to run away. No one will be able to escape, even if they could dig down into the netherworld. My hand will pull them up from there. Even if they could climb up to the heaven, I would drag them down from there. Even if they were to hide on the top of Mount Carmel, I will hunt them down and take them from there. Even if they tried to hide from me at the bottom of the sea, from there I will command the sea serpent to bite them. The sea serpent is an image of chaos that dwells in the bottom of the sea. Even when their enemies drive them in captivity, from there I will command the sword to kill them. I will not let them out of my sight, and they will experience disaster, not prosperity. The sovereign Yahweh who commands armies will do this. He touches the earth and it dissolves, and all who live on it mourn. And the whole earth rises like the river Nile, and then grows calm like the Nile in Egypt. He builds up the upper rooms of his palace in heaven, and he sits the foundation supports on the earth. He summons the water of the sea and pours out the earth's surface. Yahweh is his name. So the last vision is, I'm going to bring the temple of God, down on you. The only place where you can really truly connect to Yahweh is going to be torn down. And that vision is fitting because he says, I'm going to dry up the word of God. I'm going to bring a famine of the word of God. And this is going to begin with the temple being destroyed. And that this will be literal too. Because it will not happen in 722 when the Assyrians come and get Israel, but it will happen in 586 when the Babylonians come and get Judah. And Babylon... 
Nebuchadnezzar II will tear down the temple and it will cease to exist. And we'll talk about that when we get to Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And then God basically says, there's nowhere you can go to hide. This isn't like any other enemy where you can find a place to hide, maybe. There's nowhere to hide. I will get everyone. You Israelites, verse 7, are just like the Ethiopians in my sight, says Yahweh. Certainly I brought Israel up from the land of Egypt. But I also brought the Philistines from um, Kaphtor and the Arminians from Kerr. Look, the sovereign Yahweh is watching this sinful nation. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Now, this is interesting. We have often been told over and over and over again that God chose Israel and brought them into the promised land. But there's also a place in Deuteronomy where God comes to Israel and says, I also brought Ammon and put them in their land and placed them there. And I also brought Edom up and placed them in their land and gave them that land. I also brought Moab and put them in their land. We don't have those stories. But God has made it very clear that Israel may be his chosen people that he gave his law to, and he's going to use their descendants to give birth to the Messiah who will redeem the world. And it only happens through Israel. But he's, Israel is not the only nation that he has placed in their land and has been taking care of them. And God has made this very clear that all the world belongs to him. And all the nations belong to him. And yes, Israel is more privileged only so that they can carry the message of redemption to the entire world. But that doesn't mean that God has completely ignored the other nations and hasn't taken care of them and established them. And so here he makes it very clear, you're not special, Israel. (laughs) You're special in this sense that I've chosen to carry the message of redemption, but you're not special in that you're the only people that I care about and the only person that I've taken care of. I've also done this for the Philistines. I've also done this for the Arminians. I've taken care of them and placed them in the land too. All the world belongs to me. And everyone is important to me. But I'm going to completely destroy you. Now remember though, this is like when like you're like, everybody was there. Well, sometimes everybody doesn't always mean everybody. And when it says all of Israel showed up to hear Jesus' teachings... No, 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 they, they didn't. Okay? That would be like almost, that would be impossible. So as I, my um, professors used to say, sometimes the word all does not mean all. When God says, I'm going to completely destroy you, we know that's not true because the land, the, the, or sorry, the restoration covenant in Deuteronomy 29.30 does not allow for that. God made a promise that he would restore them. And deliver them. So the idea of completely destroy you probably has more to do with the political entity of them as a nation rather than them as physical people who live and breathe. So what God is describing is I'm going to destroy your nation, your government, your political entity, the land that gives you food. Not that I'm going to completely destroy and kill every single Israelite that there is. Because that is not that doesn't jive with his promises. But we know that the entire nation as a political entity does get annihilated and ceases to exist after the exile. In fact, that's what the whole book of Ezra and Nehemiah is, is in trying to rebuild a government from scratch, basically. 
Verse 9, For look, I am giving command, and I will shake the family of Israel together with all the nations. It will resemble a sheep being shaken, and then not even a pebble falls to the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. The one who says disaster will not come near, it will not confront us. That's the judgment. You can very much see God's anger. You can very much see that a judgment is coming. And there's not much of an escape from it. But he has thoroughly rebuked them. He has warned them. But remember, this is going to become clear as we get into the other prophets. There is a chance to repent. And there's a chance to escape this. This is harsh. It's overwhelming. But God is also making it very clear what will happen. This is like when you go to the kids. Okay, a good parent says, if you disobey me, this is exactly what I will do. A bad parent just punishes you when you disobey and you had no idea what was coming. We might have all been guilty of that different times. I'm not saying you're a bad parent because you've done that a couple times. But if you consistently do it all the time, that's not good. God is telling them what's coming. Because God is a good and loving God who loves them. And he doesn't want to punish them. And that's why he sends prophets after prophets after prophets. Look, the prophets are going to start coming in the 740s. And the judgment doesn't come until the 722. That's over 20 years of prophets bringing warnings. And before that, there was also Elijah and Elisha and the 800s making clear. So that's 100 years before that. And then before that, there were also prophets of Samuel and all them making it clear. And the judges where God, I mean, so we're talking about hundreds of years where God has made it clear, this is what will happen. And it goes all the way back to the Deuteronomic law. And you can even go back to the time of Abraham when he punished Sodom and Gomorrah. And that was in the 2000s. So God is making it very clear, I want you to repent. I want you to come back. You can escape this judgment. And the later prophets that are literally going to tell them that, repent and you can escape this. And the other way that you know that that's not just empty words is because when Judah comes, when Hezekiah comes into power, ruling over Judah, Judah and Hezekiah will repent. And the Assyrians will not take Judah into exile. Judah was supposed to go into exile under the Assyrians. And Israel went because they didn't repent and Judah didn't because they repented. And so God is even willing to separate people into the repentive and the non-repentive and not just bring the whole punishment on everybody regardless of who repents or who doesn't. And so God is making it very clear this is what he wants for you to repent, not for him to judge. So he has judged them, he's warned them, but as a good and gracious God, he's also promising restoration. And this is where he's coming in now to hug you after he's slapped you. So now he says this. This is his his promise of restoration. Verse 11. In that day, I will rebuild the collapsing hut of David. I will seal its gaps, repair its ruins, and restore it to what it was like in the days gone by. First, I'm going to restore the house of David. And by that, he means the ruling power of David. The Davidic line as kings. I'm going to reestablish your government. And I'm going to reestablish your government under my chosen descendants, the Davidic line. Verse 12, as a result, they will conquer those left in Edom and all the nations subject to my rule. And Yahweh, who is about to do this, is speaking. Not only that, the Davidic line will not only rule over Israel that's been restored, 
but it will rule over the surrounding nations as well. The power of David will extend beyond Israel's borders. Be sure this is the time is coming, says Yahweh, when plowmen will catch up to the reaper, and the one who stumps the grapes will overtake the planter. Juice will run down the slopes. It will flow down all the hillsides. Basically, what he's saying is that there will be so many crops that are abundantly flowing in the land, you won't be able to keep up with it. Okay, You won't have enough people to gather all the fruits and all the crops and take them off and, and actually eat them and partake of them. It's going to be a land of abundance. Juice will run down the slopes. It will flow down all the hillsides. Now, once again, this is not literal. God never made a candy land of Israel. This is all metaphorical. Remember, you know it's a metaphor or figure of speech when it doesn't literally make sense. Or it's ridiculous when you take it literally. I will bring back my people Israel, and they will rebuild the cities lying in rubble and settle down. They will plant vineyards and drink the wine they produce, and they will grow orchards and eat the fruit they produce. I will bring Israel back out of exile. I'll put them back in the land. That's the restoration covenant. But I'll make the land abundant. Now remember, this isn't just about food. This is about life. When the entire Israel is dependent upon agriculture and your land producing food determines whether you're going to have a good life, a peaceful life, uh, 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 not pe- your family is sick and dying or starving life. This is all about life. I will plant them on their land, and they will never again be uprooted from the land. I, gave, I have given them, says Yahweh your God. They will never be uprooted again. He promises an exile will never, ever, ever happen again. And that's important. There have been many times that they've sinned against God, and he's brought famine. And then they sin, he brought famine. He sinned, brought famine. There are many times that they've sinned, he's brought people to oppress them. And they sin, he prays for people, and they repent. And then they sin, they oppress. All these judgments have happened over and over again, despite how many times they repented, because they keep going back into it again. But with exile, he says, I'll never do that again. This is a one-time deal. Exile is a one-time deal. Is the restoration, is that really what happened recently, or is the restoration... I can't think of when it would because they scattered them, the northern kingdom everywhere, and they really did not come back to that land. Yes. It is a restoration that began under Ezra and Nehemiah. It's a restoration that continued under Christ. It's a restoration that continues in the second coming. And we're going to talk about that. Right now, we're dealing with, that's a great question, and that's exactly where we're going to go. I told you about the body transparency thing, okay? So you got those books, and they had transparency that's skeletal. And then you overlay the transparency of that, of the nervous system, and then the new transparency of the muscles, okay? That's what we're doing. So the first transparency is Davidic line restored, land restored, you return. Okay, that's the basic foundational understanding. This is why it's also key to read these prophets in chronological order, not just table of contents order. Because when we get to the next prophet, he's going to add a new layer on. And we get to the next prophet, he's going to add a new layer on. By the time we get to Jeremiah, he's going to throw a new layer on that's going to start hinting, return from exile is something that's way more than anything that Ezra and Nehemiah experience. Like it seems to be more than just physical. It involves spiritual forgiveness of sins and that kind of stuff. And then when you get to Ezekiel, 
it begins to make it very clear there's something way deeper and more global going on. And you begin to realize that this can only happen in some ultimate fantastic act of God. And it, once you get to the Gospels, all of a sudden Ezekiel begins to make sense. And then when we get deeper, like into Joel and that kind of stuff, you're going to realize, well, this is like totally global. And you begin to realize when we get the book of Revelation, then they begin to make sense. And so then you begin to realize that return from exile is a three-part thing. The physical under Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, and then the spiritual under Jesus Christ the cross, and then a totality of global proportions under the second coming of Christ. And that's what we're going to develop. So yes, you're right. There is a return, but you didn't quite kind of see what's being described here because it didn't quite happen. And that's why they're looking for more. Now, first they thought they returned. And we're going to talk about this too more, but I'm just kind of foreshadowing. They thought that God had fulfilled his promise of returning under Ezra, Nehemiah, and Zerubbabel. But when they begin to realize that the Greeks were ruling over them, and they begin to realize the Romans were still ruling over them, they're like, wait a minute, this doesn't feel like a out of exile anymore. Yeah, we're back in the land, but it feels still kind of like exile. And that's when they begin to realize exile is not over with. Even though physical return has happened, exile is not over yet. And that's why when Jesus comes along, the, 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 um, the, the disciples are like, is this the day you're going to bring the kingdom of God? Because what they mean is, is this the day that exile is finally over with? And that's why they're so desperate for that. Good question. Does that help? All right, and we will develop that way deeper as we keep going. But that's kind of the trailer of the preview. What you begin to see, and here's the other, the first layer. You get to see this little mini image of the Garden of Eden. The way he describes flowing rivers of juices and abundant fruit and all that kind of stuff. Israel never even had that the first time. That's Garden of Eden language. Rivers flowing with life and abundance of everything. And notice he doesn't even talk about working the land. He says that the fruit will produce so much you can't keep up with it. That doesn't sound like sweat and blood working the land like most farmers do. And so what you begin to see is this little Garden of Eden image. I'm going to make Israel the Garden of Eden. When we get to Ezekiel, God's going to say, the Garden of Eden is going to be the entire planet. This will continue to be developed. This is the first layer of the transparency. And right now what you have is return to land, abundance of fruit, and a restoration of the Davidic line. And we'll keep, well, we won't. The prophets will keep adding to that as we keep going. That's the book of Amos. Now we move slow through Amos because Amos is the foundation. Amos has built the foundation for you. He has introduced the idea of God's ultimate judgment for their idolatry, their social injustice against the poor and the widows and cheating people, and the religious hypocrisy. How they can cheat people and then go into the temple and worship God like it's no big deal. Or they can cheat people and worship their gods and then go and worship Yahweh like it's no big deal that they're worshiping other gods. And those are the three major sins that God has attacked. Then we see the judgment. You're going to be carried off into exile, and there's no escaping it. And then we've seen the promise of restoration. Return to the land, Davidic line restored, land flowing with 
abundance again. Those are your three boxes, so to speak. The sin that he hates, the judgment that is coming, and the promise of the restoration. And Amos is thoroughly, in graphic language of anger, lay that all out for you. 